Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for February 14th through 20th, 2022. This is covering Genesis chapters 18 to 23. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hello, Scriptures. Wow, so great to have them. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 27 minutes, 51 seconds. All right, well, that's pretty good, but what would it be daily? Three minutes, 58 seconds. So just under four minutes. That's so easy. Mm -hmm. Now, listen, we've got multiple chapters today. So if you want to take it chapter by chapter, please do. Otherwise, buckle up and we'll talk about them all together. But right before we get started, don't forget that if you're watching the show on YouTube, links from the show and a PDF of all our quotes and graphics, it's located in the description below. We hope that it helps you in your study. Also, please know that there is an audio-only podcast. You can find it by searching for Scripture Gems on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And if you're already subscribed and listening... You might want to check out the video version of the show on YouTube. Search for the Brother Fulmer channel. Yeah. Now, I also wanted to share some resources. We've shared some in past episodes. And if you want a great collection of Old Testament resources, please go back to episode one and review some things that we talked about there. But let me offer a couple more today. If you go into your gospel library under gospel topics, go to Old Testament. We'll put a link in the description. But in it, it gives a nice overview of the Old Testament, but then a lot of other resources. And the reason I wanted to mention it is that there's a wonderful list of articles in there. Some of them include things like Faith and Fortitude, Women of the Old Testament. That's a part one and part two. Christ and Culture in the Old Testament. And the Savior's use of the Old Testament. These are various articles from the Enzyme. They're really great, and there's others as well. Really recommend that entry into Gospel Topics if you want to expand your study and understanding of the Old Testament. Let me offer another resource as well. Consider memorizing scriptures together as part of your Come Follow Me study. There's a wonderful talk by Elder Richard G. Scott called The Power of Scripture. This is from the General Conference in October 2011. He says this, Learning, pondering, searching, and memorizing scriptures is like filling a filing cabinet with friends, values, and truths that can be called upon anytime, anywhere in the world. Great power can come from memorizing scriptures. To memorize a scripture is to forge a new friendship. It is like discovering a new individual who can help in time of need, give inspiration and comfort, and be a source of motivation for needed change. After he says that, then he shares a meaningful scripture that he has memorized. And guess what? It's Psalms 24, 1 through 5 from the Old Testament. So these are great scriptures to get inside our minds. Now, each of you might have your own ways that you memorize, but especially if you have kids or students, I recommend Jason Baird's LDS Scripture Rock. 
These are original and very well-produced songs that fit the rhythm of the verses themselves, not trying to fit the verses into pre-existing tunes like Camp Town Races or whatever. These were originally made to help students learn the scripture mastery scriptures in seminary, although many of those have changed now since these were made back in like 2009. But each one of these songs is for a great scripture. So whether they're a doctrinal mastery scripture or not, they're all worth learning. Most of them are exciting and fun, but some are very beautiful, usually when the scriptures have to do with the atonement of Jesus Christ. They can be found on iTunes. You can buy them individually, or you can get the discs on Amazon or eBay. They're out of print now, but you can still find them there. If you can get the combo set, it includes a karaoke DVD with words on it timed to the music. These have been incredibly meaningful to my family. I have a grown son who's not currently active, but he can still sing all 10 commandments from Exodus 23 through 17. I love that those words are in there. I'll link to a music video that I did many years ago with my kids for a family home evening activity, but I think you'll have a lot of fun with that approach to learning scriptures. And with that, let's jump into Genesis chapter 18. Remember now that Abraham offered Lot, Abraham's nephew, his choice of land so that they wouldn't have conflicts over water for their respective flocks. Lot chose the land that contained the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he soon found himself living in Sodom. While Abraham and Sarah were dwelling in the plains of Mamre, three holy messengers visited Abraham starting in verse 2. And he lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. So who were these men? The Joseph Smith translation for verse 3, footnote A, uses the phrase, My brethren, instead of my Lord, indicating that the Lord was not one of the three men. Also, if we jump down to verse 23 and check out the Joseph Smith translation, footnote A, it clarifies that these three messengers were holy men sent forth after the order of God. Now, the seminary manual gives us an interesting insight. It says, in the King James Version of the Bible, the word angels, which was used in reference to these men in Genesis 19.1, was translated from the Hebrew word malachim, which can also mean messengers. Although we do not know the identity of the three messengers, Abraham treated them as if they were presiding authorities of the Lord's kingdom then on the earth, and their messages were directly from the Lord. Now, back to the chapter, verses 6 through 8, Abraham and Sarah quickly prepared a meal for the messengers, starting again in verse 9. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now remember that although Sarah had hoped to have children, she was past childbearing age. 
something we learn in verse 11. God had just revealed to Abraham, back in chapter 17, verse 19, that Sarah would have a son and his name would be Isaac. But when? It must have seemed impossible. So again, the promise is made. But now it sounds like it will happen soon. And it's interesting that the previous promise was given directly to Abraham. This is coming from someone else. So this is kind of like a second witness that this will happen. Great point. So if you were Sarah, what might you have thought when you heard this news? Look for how she responded in verse 12. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee, according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. From the Institute Manual, we get some additional commentary on Sarah's laugh. It says, quote, Sarah's astonished laughter at the news she was to conceive and bear a son should not be interpreted as proving her lack of faith. Often in the scriptures, the servants of the Lord are astonished beyond belief at the miraculous goodness of the Lord. Moses could not believe that he was capable of being God's spokesman with the Pharaoh and asked that he receive help. Gideon needed dramatic proof that the Lord wanted him to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Hezekiah asked for confirmation that Isaiah's promise of extended life was really of the Lord. Zechariah was struck dumb so that he would know that his wife Elizabeth would conceive. And when the disciples saw the resurrected Lord for the first time, Luke tells us, They yet believed not for joy. It was the incredible nature of the news that caused Sarah's response. And after approximately 70 years of childlessness, who could condemn her temporary inability to believe the joyous promise? End quote. So what did Abraham and Sarah learn about the Lord? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. The Lord is able to do all things. In Genesis 18, 16 through 22, because the Lord saw that Abraham would be faithful in keeping his covenants, he revealed to Abraham what he would do with Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice in verse 20, it describes a very grievous sin being committed by the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Footnote B for that verse suggests homosexuality, which is in line with Genesis 19, 4 through 5. And in the New Testament, Jude chapter 1, verse 7 says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Or, in other words, they pursued unnatural desire, as the ESV and other modern translations have translated it. Certainly, homosexuality, fornication, and other sexual sin was a major problem in Sodom and surrounding cities, but was that the core sin? Romans chapter 1 is often used to show teachings against homosexuality in verses 26 and 27, but this misses the more important sin in verses 21 through 25, 
which might be summarized best in verse 25, they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. In other words, they worshiped and served themselves. Pride was the sin. The rest of Romans chapter 1 describes many sins, but they are all the fruits of this one, pride. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 through 50, also makes it clear that this is Sodom's sin. It says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. The reason this is important is that if we concentrate on the fruits of pride, in this case, sexual sin, we might think within ourselves, well, those people in Sodom are bad. I don't have a problem with that sin like they do. And then we miss the lesson. Rather, if we recognize that pride is at the root of all these sins, in other words, that we want our will above God's will, we could see ourselves in the story and learn from it. And funny enough, if we take the attitude of, well, I don't have a problem with a sin like they do, that is actually a manifestation of pride, or possibly. I find that when we willfully abandon our own self-discipline of any kind, we start by asserting pride. I know that God says I should do this, but that's just too hard and frustrating. So I say I don't have to do that. We become a law unto ourselves, to coin a phrase from Doctrine and Covenants 8835. And where does that path lead? Toward God or away from God? If the path leads away from God, you'll see other sins starting to compound. One vice leads to another. The people of Sodom appear to have reached their peak in this path. And what's the result? Ezekiel points out some key items in verse 49 of what we just read. Abundance of idleness? Well, if you're not going to discipline yourself, why do anything except that which will bring you immediate pleasure or comfort? But see that neither did they strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Pride turns one inward. As a result, you naturally ignore those around you who may need your help. We've mentioned and quoted from this talk several times, and with very good reason, But if you would like to learn more about the problems of pride and how to avoid them, we strongly recommend Beware of Pride by President Ezra Taft Benson. This comes from April 1989 General Conference. Yeah. Excellent talk. Amen. We'll include a link in the description. Completely agree. Well, let's go on in verse 22 of Genesis 18. It says, And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. (laughs) That's, That's very bold, but I also really appreciate what it says about Abraham's compassion and love for the people. 
And I find the phrasing from the Lord to be very interesting. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. The Lord already knows. This is a teaching moment for Abraham. And the Lord is condescending to Abraham to help him understand what's about to happen. It's really kind of sweet. Well, I think it is, but I also think how great Abraham is. He's an incredible, loving person that, like Christ, pleads for even those that maybe are past the point of pleading. So in verses 27 through 33, Abraham humbly pleads with the Lord for a few righteous people that may be found in Sodom. What if there are just five less, only 45? Or how about 40? Or 30? Or 20? Or 10? And each time the Lord answers his plea that he will not destroy it, if he can find that number of righteous in the city. But will his servants even find 10 righteous in Sodom? Tune in and let's find out. Genesis chapter 19. Have you ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? Remember when Lot and his family were captured by enemy kings because they lived in Sodom when it was conquered? We talked about this when we covered Genesis 14. Well, Lot is still living in Sodom. When these three messengers, and I should point out that Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, says two messengers, but the Joseph Smith translation says three. Anyway, when these messengers arrived in Sodom, they met Lot. In verses 2 and 3, Lot invited and in fact pleaded with the three messengers to stay at his home for the night so they would not have to remain in the streets of Sodom. It's almost as if Lot knew that the streets of Sodom at night were no place for these three messengers to find themselves. (laughs) In verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them, and shut the door after him, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Now, the footnote for verse 5, no, is used in both Hebrew and English in this context as a euphemism in place for a sexual word. We have seen this earlier in Genesis. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived. This isn't Adam suddenly expressing recognition. Hey, I know you. With Adam, we're referring to a natural act between husband and wife. Here, with the men of Sodom, intent to sexually abuse is implied. Right. So it would be much nicer if no meant a form of meaningful relationship, of friendship with. They would have been like a welcoming committee. But unfortunately, that's not what they were talking about. Not so much. Now, we'd like to use the Joseph Smith translation for the coming verses. As you read them in Genesis, you might find them a little bit shocking or hard to understand. And I think the Joseph Smith translation really helps us to better understand the picture of what's going on. You can find this in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 19. In that case, it's verses 9 through 15 in your appendix. Let's start with verse 9. And they said unto him, Stand back. And they were angry with him. And they said amongst themselves, This one man came in to sojourn among us, and he will needs now make himself to be a judge? 
now we will deal worse with him than with them. Now, that phrase in verse 10 has really stood out to me as of late. The men of Sodom clearly wanted to abuse the messengers visiting Lot. When Lot pleaded with them not to continue their course, what was their response? This one man came in to sojourn among us, and he will needs now make himself to be a judge? Do you hear the pride? We've decided that what we're doing is not immoral or a sin. You, Lot, are an outsider and come to our city and judge our actions as immoral? How dare you? But isn't this a familiar reaction? Have we ever been caught doing something we know we shouldn't be doing? We immediately feel guilt, but then we look for any possible way out. Do we perhaps strain to silence or discredit the person who rightly called attention to our guilt? Maybe, as the men of Sodom, we might claim that our accuser is being judgmental or attempting to be holier than thou, even when we know that isn't true. That's a really good point. Let's go on in verse 11. Wherefore they said unto the man, We will have the men and thy daughters also, and we will do with them as seemeth us good. Now this was after the wickedness of Sodom. And Lot said, Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, plead with my brethren that I may not bring them out unto you. And ye shall not do unto them as seemeth good in your eyes. For God will not justify his servant in this thing. Wherefore, let me plead with my brethren this once only, that unto these men ye do nothing, that they may have peace in my house. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they were angry with Lot, and came near to break the door. But the angels of God, which were holy men, put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house unto them, and shut the door. Well, let's go back to the biblical account in Genesis chapter 19. This brings us to verse 11. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. So that was the Lord's protection. In verses 12 to 16, the holy men asked Lot to collect any other family members that would follow him and depart. Lot tried, but his sons-in-law didn't take him seriously. In the morning, when the servants of God said it was time to leave, Lot and his family lingered, in verse 16. But they took them by the hand and led them out of the city to safety. Let's go on to verse 17. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed." Going on in verses 18 through 23, Lot pleads to be allowed to flee instead to the little city of Zoar. Is it not a little one, as Lot tells us in verse 20? <laughs> That's great. Uh, he's given permission to do so. Starting in verse 24, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the plain, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, brimstone would be an older English word referring to sulfur, just so that we know what that is. Right. Well, from the seminary manual, and also in Come Follow Me, we have a quote from Jeffrey R. Holland from his talk, Remember Lot's Wife, 
This was from a BYU devotional on January 13th, 2009. He says, apparently, what was wrong with Lot's wife was that she wasn't just looking back. In her heart, she wanted to go back. It is possible that Lot's wife looked back with resentment toward the Lord for what he was asking her to leave behind. I plead with you not to dwell on days now gone, nor to yearn vainly for yesterdays, however good those yesterdays may have been. The past is to be learned from, but not lived in. We look back to claim the embers from glowing experiences, but not the ashes. And when we have learned what we need to learn and have brought with us the best that we have experienced, then we look ahead. We remember that faith is always pointed toward the future. Faith always has to do with blessings and truths and events that will yet be efficacious in our lives. So a more theological way to talk about Lot's wife is to say that she did not have faith. She doubted the Lord's ability to give her something better than she already had. Apparently, she thought, fatally as it turned out, that nothing that lay ahead could possibly be as good as those moments she was leaving behind. It is also possible that Lot's wife may not have merely looked back, but may have returned to Sodom. In Luke chapter 17, verses 28 through 32, it references that, specifically, let him likewise not return back, remember Lot's wife. Now, you might remember that we talked briefly about Lot's wife last year when we studied Doctrine and Covenants section 133, verse 15 references Lot's wife. One of our viewers, Susan Naylor, rightly reminded us that Lot and his wife had at least two daughters that chose to stay behind in Sodom with their husbands. Was Lot's wife simply so worldly that she couldn't bear to leave the comforts of Sodom? Or did her desire to return perhaps have more to do with protecting her daughters? But even if she was attempting to protect her daughters, is there really anything we can do when God's judgments have been declared? Wouldn't that be a form of pride? Either way, though, where was her desire? Are there times when perhaps God will test our allegiance to him above all else, including maybe even our family? Stay tuned. Yeah, very good point. Where is our allegiance taking us? Toward God or away? Now, in Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38, after Sodom, Gomorrah, and other cities were destroyed, Lot and his two daughters went to a nearby mountain to live in a cave. In an effort to preserve the seed of their father, verses 32 and 34, the firstborn daughter proposed a wicked, and this is made clear in the Joseph Smith translation footnotes for verses 31 and 35, a wicked and deceptive plan to intoxicate their father and lie with him, verse 32, so they each could become pregnant. As a result of this wickedness, each daughter had a son. The son's descendants became the Moabite and the Ammonite nations. And we'll come in contact with these nations again in later lessons. Exactly. Now, although Lot was not a wicked man, his decision to bring his family to live among evil influences resulted in serious consequences. Think about how life might have been different for Lot and his family if he had not chosen to associate with Sodom. It's interesting the impact exposure to sinful behavior can have. Just recently, as of the date of this recording, 
popular Grammy Award-winning and 19-year-old singer Billie Eilish said that her exposure to porn destroyed her brain. She said that she started watching porn when she was 11, stating, I thought I was one of the guys and would talk about it and think I was really cool for not having a problem with it and not seeing why it was bad. Eilish said the experience led her to not say no to things that were not good when she began having sex. It was because I thought that's what I was supposed to be attracted to. As a woman, I think porn is a disgrace. I think it really destroyed my brain, and I feel incredibly devastated that I was exposed to so much porn. I am so angry that porn is so loved, and I'm so angry at myself for thinking that it was okay. We'll include a link to a couple of articles covering that story in the description. It's interesting to note, though, she's certainly not a conservative personality, and yet she understood the truth of those wicked influences. On the other side, though, there are women that have come out against what she's saying, concerned that her comments would hurt the porn industry, and these women are defending the porn industry. So how interesting the points of view that we have and the perspective that we have. Indeed. Well, let's go on to Genesis chapter 20. After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham and Sarah traveled to the land of Gerar. As he had previously done, Abraham referred to Sarah as his sister. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, desired Sarah as his wife and took her. However, God warned Abimelech in a dream that Sarah was really Abraham's wife and that Abraham was a prophet. Abimelech restored Sarah to Abraham and was blessed. Starting in verse 16, And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. Now, that verse may seem a little confusing, so let's take a look to an alternate translation. This is from the English Standard Version. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Yeah, that makes more sense. And it's important to point out that although Abimelech took Sarah, he never had any kind of relationship with her quite yet. That was one of the reasons I think Abimelech wanted to make a public show of the fact that, oh, she's innocent. Yep. Good. Well, let's move on then to Genesis chapter 21. Finally, the moment we've been waiting for is here. Sarah has her son. Hooray! Starting at verse 1. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was an hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me. Note the footnote for laugh means to rejoice. Going on in verse 7. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck, for I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. 
Now in verses 9 through 11, Sarah saw Hagar's son Ishmael mocking, or as Paul in the New Testament describes it, persecuting Isaac. That's from Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. Sarah told Abraham to send the bondwoman and Ishmael away into the wilderness, which initially grieved Abraham. In verse 12, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, in verses 13 through 21, God promised Abraham that Ishmael's descendants would become a great nation. Remember the promises that God had made with Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. After giving Hagar and Ishmael some supplies, Abraham sent them away. When Hagar and Ishmael ran out of water, Hagar feared her son would die. So let's take a look at verse 17. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven, and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Note the use of her name here, not her station or her nationality, as Sarah referred to her in verse 10. Going on in the verse, remember he calls her by name Hagar. Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. Notice here again, as we saw in chapter 16, God is aware of all his children and keeps all his promises. Ishmael eventually was the father of 12 princes, as God had promised in Genesis 17 verse 20 and became the principal ancestor of much of the Arab world in fulfillment of these promises. In verses 22 through 34, Abraham makes a covenant of peace with Abimelech, the king of Gerar, and dwells in the Philistine lands many days. And that brings us to chapter 22. I'm going to start this chapter with a great quote from President Thomas S. Monson. This comes from October 2007 General Conference. He says, quote, the greatest lesson we can learn in mortality is that when God speaks and we obey, we will always be right, End quote. With that in mind, let us go to verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now, note the footnote. Tempt means to test or to prove. Back to the verse. And said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Now how can this be? Think of Abraham's conflicts. His idolatrous father had tried to have him killed by being sacrificed on the altar of the pagan priest of Elkanah in Abraham chapter 1. He knew human sacrifice was wrong, but also the Lord had promised that through Isaac, Abraham would become a father of many nations and that he would establish his covenant with Isaac. How could God ask this of him? Well, let's look at Abraham's response to the commandment of the Lord. Verse 3, And Abraham arose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, 
and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. So what impresses you about Abraham's response? What can we learn from Abraham's example that can help us when we're asked to do something difficult? Going on in verse 4, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Now, the Come Follow Me manual includes a link to an older video called Akeda, the binding. Akeda is a Hebrew word for binding, and its use is specifically associated with the events of this chapter. Notice in the video that Isaac is not a kid as he is sometimes portrayed in images. We don't know his exact age here, but there are reasons to believe that Isaac is older. First, he bears a load of wood, verse 6. The phrase is many days, often translated a long time in Genesis 21-34, and it came to pass after these things, which can mean sometime after, sometime later, in Genesis 22.1, could suggest that a substantial amount of time elapsed between Isaac's birth and the trip to Moriah. We know that Sarah was 90 years old when Isaac was born, and, spoilers, she will only live to be 127. This would mean that Isaac had to be younger than 37, but how much younger? We don't really know. At the very least, a young man strong enough to travel for three days and carry a substantial load of firewood up a mountain could certainly resist his over a hundred-year-old father if he didn't want to go along with this plan. But instead, look for how he submits and trusts his father. Going on in verse 9, And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Isaac's carrying of the wood on his back is reminiscent of Christ bearing the cross on his way to Golgotha in John chapter 19, verse 17, as is his willingness to submit to his father and be sacrificed if it is his will. Going on in verse 10, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. There is a great quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. This comes from October 1995 General Conference, where he says, quote, The submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give, brothers and sisters, are actually the things he has already given or loaned to us. However, 
when you and I finally submit ourselves by letting our individual wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to him, end quote. I love that image. Yeah, that's such a good concept. So imagine an altar. When have you put your will on that altar? And what does that teach you about your relationship with God? Which sins or weaknesses are you not yet willing to put on the altar? What can you do to improve your relationship with God so that you are willing to give them up? Let's go back to the chapter, starting in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Notice an interesting difference between what Abraham prophesied and what happened on the mountain. Abraham told Isaac that, quote, God will provide himself a lamb, close quote, for the sacrifice. That's in Genesis 22, 8. But in this instance, God provided a ram. It will be a couple thousand years before his prophecy would be fulfilled, when the lamb of God was sacrificed for all mankind. Going on in verses 15 through 24, because Abraham demonstrated his willingness to do what the Lord commanded, the Lord reassured him of the blessings promised in the Abrahamic covenant. After Abraham returned home, he learned about children born into the household of his brother Nahor. One of these children had a daughter named Rebekah, who would play an important role in the fulfillment of the Lord's promises to Abraham. But we will have to save that story for next week. Sounds good. Let's move on to chapter 23. Sarah dies at the age of 127, as we mentioned, and Abraham mourns. He then must have a beautiful sepulcher to bury her in, but he does not own land there. What follows is a bargaining with Ephron the son of Zohar. There is a great article on the differences between Eastern and Western cultures by a famous professor of Old Testament languages and literature at Brigham Young University, Sidney B. Sperry. It's called Hebrew Manners and Customs, and this was published in the May 1972 Enzyme. We'll share the segment on bargaining, but we really recommend the whole article. It will give you a great perspective on the cultural differences that can better help you to understand the Old and New Testaments. He says, quote, Another Oriental or Eastern custom is that of bargaining. One evening, a good friend of mine, a Jerusalem shopkeeper, told me that he didn't get a bit of fun out of charging Americans, unschooled in bargaining, many times more than an article was worth. He appreciated their money, but he would rather bargain with them. Westerners may be surprised to know that the account of Abraham's purchase of the field of Ephron, with the cave in which to bury Sarah, is in reality a description of an ancient bargaining scene when Abraham assured his Hittite friends that he would pay Ephron as much money as it is worth. Ephron stepped forward and said, Nay, my lord, hear me. The field give I thee, and the cave that is therein, I give it thee. In the presence of the sons of my people, give I it thee. Bury thy dead. 
Most readers think that Ephron was a most kind and generous man in offering the field and cave to Abraham for nothing. Actually, his words were nothing but a polite gesture to a customer. Observe that Abraham finally paid the 400 shekels proposed by Ephron for his property. End quote. We'll include a link to that full article in the description. So listen, let's look at these verses. See if you can hear that polite bargaining in the text. Let's start with verse 11. Nay, my Lord, hear me. The field give I thee, and the cave that is therein, I give it thee. In the presence of the sons of my people, give I it thee. Bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. And he spake unto Ephron and the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And that was the price. And Abraham buried his beloved wife, Sarah. And that brings us to the end of chapter 23. What a wonderful lesson we've had today. Some very interesting things to think about and ponder. Remember how important it is to not just look at the events that are happening, but look at what the underlying sins are that become more universal and more likely for us to relate to and learn lessons from. It's a great inspiration to me to look at how Abraham handles hardship and also how he treats the servants of the Lord than to look at someone, say, like Lot or his family, who may have compromised certain ideals and become much more accepting of sin. And look where that took them. Where did that lead? Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We will see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>